Uh, last time I handed out um, these note cards, um, and I've, I've, I've wanted to answer not all of the questions, but a couple of them today, and maybe a couple more next time, or something like that. Um, but I have uh, I have one here that says, "How could Solomon offer sacrifices when he wasn't a priest?" We're going to talk about that today because who offered? Who actually went up with the sacrifice, the animal, and slit its throat? The person offering the sacrifice. I'll show you verses from Leviticus 1 today. But the Leviticus begins with, when you offer a sacrifice, take it before the priest, the son of Aaron. And then you will do this, and you will do this, and you will do this. But the guy making the sacrifice is the guy who did all the sweat equity and used the knife. So could Solomon make sacrifices himself? Yes, he could. Did Solomon make all of those 120,000 sacrifices? I don't think he made all of them, but he probably paid for them. And, uh, and then other people did them. But he may have, you know, what he may have done there is, okay, one lamb for every family. Then you would get your lamb from Solomon and take it up to sacrifice it. What do I do on Saturday night? I get the boys offering envelopes. Uh, from because we keep them on top of the bread maker in my house, and uh, and I, I I I open it. You know, I take each of their envelopes out in mine. I fill mine, and then I fi- and I and I put out the money for theirs. A little fan. I make it look pretty on the stove. And so, if you ever want four bucks, you know, come to my house. And but I uh, but and then on and because then I go to church on Sunday morning. And my sons, I mean, I'm leaving at 6 in the morning. They, I, don't, I don't know when they're going to go to worship that day. But I come home whenever I get home, 1.32, 2.30, and I look at the stove, and then they've, they're all gone, except one. And there might be a post-it note that says, Daddy, Monday, sorry, or something like that. Like, he'll go to church Monday night or whatever, because... Um, uh, uh, you know, some of them are working and some of them might have gotten up late or whatever. Then another, another question here. Um, what did the animals used for sacrifice eat while they were wandering in the desert for 40 years? That's a really good question. The Hebrew word midbar, which means desert, does not mean only sand dunes and tumbleweeds. Okay? If you were, imagine yourself in the... Um, when did my family go across? In the, in the 1820s, going across the Illinois plains where there was nothing but prairie grass. What are you going to eat you know, on, in your covered wagon? You going you to cut grass and boil it? No. But will your animal have something to eat? Yeah. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the Arabah and so forth, and the Negev is this lowland. Some of it was awful, um, like where Jesus was tempted by the devil. That's a, a, a region called Jeshimon. It's just yellow and orange rock going down 400 feet below sea level to where this, this horrible body of water, the Dead Sea, sits and just kind of stinks. Um, and, uh, and where any fish, unlucky enough, to make it all the way down the Jordan without being caught. What happens to that fish? It gets into the Dead Sea and swims out about 20 yards 
and it's dead. Yeah, because it's salt water. Much higher concentration of salt than the Atlantic Ocean or Pacific Ocean or Mediterranean Sea, but very, very high concentration of salt. Um, so they, they, the animals just ate, you know, probably better than the people sometimes. Uh, maybe one or two more about the devil. Doesn't the devil know our weaknesses? And if not, why are we plagued with our pet sins over and over? Well, I didn't say the devil doesn't know our weaknesses. I said the devil can't read our thoughts, and that's a difference. So, yeah, the devil knows my weaknesses. Why? Because he's been sitting next to me for, for 57 years. You know, the devil was with me at the breakfast table as a kid. And, and, as, and as I was at the lunch table as a, as a teen and when I was alone in my apartment in my 20s, you know, trying to uh, uh, mangle my typewriter into making something out of my life and, uh, and, and so forth. The devil knows our weaknesses, but can't read your individual thoughts. Can't read your individual thoughts. Um, one last one. Uh, <clears throat> this person has elegant cursive handwriting, so I'm going to have to hold it so I can... Okay. Oh, were the Levites using the musical instruments standing above the masses on the temple wall parapets, uh, surrounding the people down below with sound or, 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 or what? And some of these are from the evening class and some are from the morning class. And uh, when they were dedicating the temple, and I, uh, we're not exactly told. We're told a lot more about where the musicians stood when the second temple was built in Haggai and Zechariah, and in and 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 therefore in um, Ezra and Nehemiah, which is a curiosity. Maybe they wondered that too. Well, when temple built, when when Solomon built the temple, where did the musicians stand? And maybe they didn't know. So when they wrote Ezra and Nehemiah, they wrote it down. They were, but, and then they were on the temple walls. They had a parade on the walls. You guys go that way around and you guys go that way around and we'll be blowing our trumpets and so forth. And, uh, but in a city made of stone, it doesn't pretty much matter where you blow your trumpet. Everybody's going to hear the trumpet. So, make sense? Let's begin First, uh, Second Chronicles chapter 8, and we're getting in, I hope, to chapter 9 today. Uh, what you have there on the cover is one of the most famous paintings of Solomon uh, in the world. Um, I'm sorry, I forget the guy's name. It, I might have it in my notes in the slides as they come around. Um, but every painting of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba painted after this painting reflects this painting. It's one of those. You know, so like uh, Michelangelo's Last Supper. Everybody after Michelangelo basically redoes Michelangelo. Chapter 8. At the end of the 20 years during which Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house. How many years? 20. Solomon reigned 40 years. So simple math. How much of Solomon's reign was taking up building his palace? Half. And he started four years in. Now those two details give us a chronology, don't they? So I've got some chronology for you on the sheet here. So Solomon also rebuilt the cities that Huram or Hiram had given to him, and he settled the Israelites in them. So um, Sol the, 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 the one date I can give you that's firm 
is that Solomon's son Rehoboam was born in 971 BC. Why? Because in 930, when he takes the throne, Rehoboam is going to be 41 years old. So Rehoboam had to be born one year before Solomon, his father, took the throne. Make sense? However, working back, I didn't put David's chronology here, and maybe I should have because there are going to be more questions about this. David's reign, I break up into four pieces. Have I walked through, through this before? Where David's time as king, that in 40 years, but in four mostly even chunks. But the first one is just seven and a half years. David was king um, in, a, in a city called Hebron before he captured Jerusalem. Seven and a half years in Hebron. Now the other 33 years... David is king, or 32 and a half years. David is king in Jerusalem, and those break up into three mostly even chunks. The first of those 10 years, or 11, whatever it is, seems to, is, is most of David's wars. The wars against the Philistines, especially the Moabites and the Ammonites. It's during the third war, the Ammonite, which, and by the way, there's a first and second Philistine war, a first and second, and maybe a third Moabite war, and two Moabite wars. So that fills that 10 years with kind of a war a year. And they, when do the Israelite kings go out to war? There's a Bible verse about that. In the spring, when the kings go out to war. So in the springtime, they would head out, and the, the food's been planted, and so now while the grain is growing, and there's not much to do back on the farm, because there's no tractors to fix then you can go out and go to war for a while and maybe your son will come back and take care of the farm or whatever. But, um, so in the end of that, of that second decade of, of David's time on the throne, the first decade in Jerusalem, the army, remember the army told David not to come anymore because he was, they were vulnerable. They, if they attacked, they say, David, you're worth a thousand of the rest of us and if they get you, we're all done for. So stop coming. So David stays at home. And I'm estimating, because of the rest of the chronology, it has to be about that year that David doesn't get to go to, to, um, to Rabbah, the capital of Ammon. And so staying at home, he's on his rooftop, he's bored, he looks behind the house, and there's this girl taking a bath next door. And that's the Bathsheba incident, which I believe ends that second decade, the first decade of David in Jerusalem. The middle decade of David in Jerusalem, which begins now with some bad stuff, because now some of his kids from when he was king back in um, Hebron, now that was seven years, and now 10 more years have gone by, or 11. And so now some of those kids are getting to be how old? 17, 16. When do kids start getting into trouble? And really bad trouble? One of David's sons, Amnon, rapes his half-sister, Tamar. Nasty stuff in the palace. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, make sure your kids have summer jobs. You know, just, just uh, if they're bored. Um, and uh, and that and then that the rest of that decade is taken up entirely 
with the story of Absalom. Because Tamar's brother is Absalom. And he's going to get revenge. He has to go away for a while. He comes back. He kills Amnon. Then he has to leave again. And then he comes back. And then there's a rebellion. And then, he, and then there's this battle in the forest of Ephraim. And he gets his hair caught in the tree. And that, 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 the death of Absalom ends that third decade now of David's reign. And now, meanwhile, uh, David during the, Adonai, the, the Absalom period, David and Bathsheba, they, she got pregnant, right? And what happened to that first child? It was a son? Died. Died. Then she has four more sons. The fourth son is Solomon. Now, ten years after Absalom's death is Adonijah's rebellion, and David dies of old age, and Solomon becomes king. How old is Solomon? I, you see, not very old? Good for you. I, in the chronology, I can't get Solomon to much older than 16 when he takes the throne. Unless two of his brothers are twins, if the, if, if the list of the four brothers is chronological, and it always is otherwise, then I, I'm kind of thinking Solomon, he's, he's the youngest of the sons, he's the most promising of David's sons, Bathsheba gets David to name him successor, and God chooses him as successor. But Solomon's not all that, which means that when Solomon is 16, or 15 rather, Rehoboam is born. And so he's what, 14 or early 15s when he gets married to his wife. And so this, this, if you start dipping your toe into this chronology business, you better be prepared to work hard at it for a while to figure this stuff out. But that's kind of, that's what's on your sheet now, and, or rather where, where it takes us to your sheet. And now Solomon begins to reign at 970. He builds the temple in 966. That's a firm date, fourth year of his reign. Seven years afterwards, a week before the Day of Atonement happens, they consecrate the temple. That was last week's chapter, right? So it's nine, that's 959 B.C. Um, the palace isn't completed until 946 20 years after work began on the temple and the palace. And so knowing that, when does the queen of Sheba come to visit David? Is the temple done yet or is it still in progress? But she, she marvels at the architecture. I'm kind of thinking maybe it was done. Which makes this queen of Sheba incident that we're coming up to in chapter 9 a very late incident in Solomon's reign. Like between 946 and 930 when he dies. Well, chapter 8 is not about that. It's about this other woman, the Pharaoh's daughter, and we're going to come across this. But let's look at uh, these cities. So, um, Hiram, or Huram, king of Tyre, sold Solomon all of this wood, right? For This is the, 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 the shoreline of Tyre and Lebanon. So, um, so Hiram gives Solomon all of this lumber for the temple and so forth and workmen and all that. And we're, we were told back then that Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities on the border, on the Phoenician border between Lebanon and Galilee. And the question is, why? 
And I'm, we're, the, the speculation that I kind of agree with is that I think he went into debt. Solomon owed Hiram more money than he had at the time. He didn't have all the gold yet. He will have gold and sil- so much silver that they stop even counting it. That's a lot of silver. It's like the, 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 the stones being built up beside the church here because of the construction. And, um, and, and, but later on, Solomon gets money back. He's, now he's got this regular income of all of these tons of gold every year. And so I think he buys the cities back from Hiram. And Hiram was probably happier to get the money than what Hiram considered to be kind of rinky-dink, nothing towns. You know, um, nothing against any village in the area. But, uh, oh, where I grew up, there was a small village that didn't even have a, a proper crossroads anywhere. It was just houses, and uh, there was a school, and there was a church a couple miles away, and it was, the town was called Decorah, Wisconsin. But when you would say, I'm going to Decorah, people would look at you funny, like, how do you go to Decorah? There's no place, to, you know, there, whose house are you going to? Um, and I, I wonder if the towns were kind of like that. But have you ever been playing Monopoly and you've got some worthless, like some yellows or some oranges or something, and you sell them to your brother and suddenly he's got hotels there? That's what happened to Hiram. Hiram sells these cities, these villages, these crossroads back to Solomon. And we're told here, Solomon uh, 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 rebuilt the cities that Huram had given to him and settled Israelites in them, all of a sudden Solomon has forts where once upon a time there had been, you know, not even a school. So this is, uh, uh, maybe was a little bit of a concern, but, you know, too bad, so sad. You know, you sold me the land back. Solomon went to Hamath Zobah and seized it. He built Tadmor in the wilderness and all the towns for storehouses in Hamath. This same map, this is Hamath. It's between the, between the red lines is this mountain pass called Lebo Hamath, which means the entrance to Hamath. Hamath is up north where all the uplands and the good trees and really good cow grazing land. It's sort of the left side of Bashan and some, some nice area, a lot of nice cities up there. And so if I can make you see this, uh, Lebo Hamath, you see the bad green line I tried to draw this morning? That's going to the bottom of the, of the route. And then up at the top of it is this city of Hamath. So the entrance of Hamath is the mountain pass. Hamath is the really nice city up at the top. And the, and the fortress, Solomon captured that and took it. Then he built Upper Beth Horon and Lower Beth Horon as fortified cities with walls and barred gates. Beth Horon, this is what the, the, one of the towers still looked like uh, when an artist visited there. This is a view from below looking at upper Beth Horon. This is the hill that overlooks all of the territory of Benjamin. So it was a guard tower. So we've gone up north, right? Lebo Hamath and Tadmor. Now we've come down to the middle of Israel to Benjamin and there's a good fort just north of Jerusalem now. And Jerusalem's a walled city. And now we're told he also built Baalath, which is just east, uh, that is, if you're looking at a map to the right, of Beersheba. And where in Israel is Beersheba? North, south, east, west? Beersheba is 
south. If you, if, and by the way, the ratio is one to one. If you lay Israel on top of Minnesota, because they're the same size, and the Twin Cities are kind of where Jerusalem is. Beersheba is Nuwalm. Okay, if that helps you a little bit with that. And anything over on the west side of Minnesota is under the water of the Mediterranean Sea. So just write all them off. But uh, anyway, that's, that's how it goes. So he built Baalath, all the towns for storehouses which belonged to him, and all the cities which housed the chariots and the charioteers. Solomon, what do you call a house for a charioteers? I, well, chariots, but charioteers I would call barracks. That's the guys who drive the chariots. I, I think barracks and, and then the barns or whatever. The, yeah. um, Solomon built everything he desired in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in all the land of his kingdom. So he's got stuff everywhere. All the people who remained from, remember the, all these ites? The Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, all the, who were not part of the people of Israel. And all through um, Joshua, Judges, and Samuel, there was this command to get rid of all those people, and, and they never quite did it. Well, Solomon just conscripted them and put them to work. So their descendants remaining in the land who had not been completely destroyed by Israel were drafted by forced labor by Solomon. They are serving right up to this day. What is this day? This day. It's the day when the book was written. When was Chronicles written? Well, the last verses of 2 Chronicles are the return from the exile from Babylon. So that, that's, that's one thing we know about Chronicles is about when it was written. So it's about the time that, that, that rather that, um, not Ezra, but that um, Zerubbabel came back from the exile. Um, so Daniel is still living. He's a really old man. Um, Ezekiel probably still living. Jeremiah still living, but they're old guys. Seventy years of exile have gone by. And these guys who were taken captive when they were boys, they're probably still living. But they're, they're maybe not going to come back because they're, they're old. But the younger people who are coming back, and that's about the time that Chronicles is written, or maybe shortly after that. Anyway. Nine. Solomon did not press the people of Israel into service. Rather, they were soldiers, leaders among his officers, commanders of his chariots and charioteers. There were 250 leaders of Solomon's officials who exercised authority um, over the people. By the way, in, in, in 1 Kings, this, this same verse occurs. The number's a little bit, it's, it's 550. This says 250. Um, sometimes, what, the, one of the most common mistakes when you're copying something is transposing numbers. You ever done that? Like even in your checkbook? You know, so it does happen sometimes. Um, so... Solomon brought Pharaoh's daughter up from the city of David to the house which he had built for her because he said, my wife will not live in the house of David, king of Israel, because those palaces to which the ark of the Lord has come are holy. So remember, David built a little tent for the ark of the covenant by his house 
And evidently, he had married that one of the, one of his wives was the daughter of Pharaoh. So this Egyptian princess came up, and they they put her up first of all in this in the in the in David's house, not in the upper palace, but David's lower palace. But Solomon said, you know, the Ark of the Covenant was there. She shouldn't be there. That's holy. Why was he worried? What do you think she was doing, this Egyptian princess? Say it again. I, yeah, I think she's worshiping Ra and Sutek and, and, and whatever else, um, these gods of Egypt. And when Solomon finds out, he says she's, she can't stay there. She can have a house. So he, but we're told kind of where it was because it says Solomon brought Pharaoh's daughter where? Up. Well, from the city of David, there aren't many places that are up. And if you look at this map, uh, on the left side, can you see where it says, east, or on the right side, it says Eastern Hill, City of David, Kidron Valley, kind of over, over there. Well, above that, it says Mount Moriah. I don't know if you can read that or not, but that's what that says. That's the temple, and that's up from the City of David. But if she can't be down below because, because down below is holy, there's no way she can be up where the temple is because that's holy too. So up must be over to the left. And there are a couple of hills that are over to the left where maybe he could have put her up and built a, a house, a nice palace for her. Uh, one, and there's a, there's a road that goes in between one of those hills. Um, apparently looked like a skull. What is it? Golgotha? Um, remember, Golgotha existed in Solomon's time. It's not just a new thing in Jesus' time. And maybe it was, maybe, or it might have been across the little valley from Golgotha. Maybe she could have looked out her bathroom window and seen Golgotha, not knowing, of course, what it was. But, but there's a southwestern hill where there's a lot of, later on, King Herod the Great had a palace there and so forth. In fact, we think, we're, we're relatively sure that Jesus was crucified just north of Herod's palace, which would be on that street that goes from the temple to the, to the west, that Golgotha would have been there. And then right behind Golgotha, one of the reasons for that is that right behind it is a natural set of caves where they were doing quarrying work in the first century. And those quarries with natural caves get sold then as tombs. And the, the thought is that the, the traditional tomb of Jesus is about from, from Alan and Rachel back there to me, away from where the cross probably was. It's, I mean, it's right there. So just yards away. Um, and would have made sense also for the whole thing, the whole, fits the whole story just ideally. Then another possibility is this lower hill uh, over here that was, a, was above. Um. Anyway, for up. And these are the two pharaohs in question, um, Siamon and then uh, Suenes II. I don't know uh, which one of these two would have had the daughter. Um, might have made more sense for it to be a daughter of Siamon, um, the, 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 the earlier reigning pharaoh. This is actually, however, a statue of one of Suenes' daughters, um, and not necessarily Solomon's wife, but she was probably this girl's sister. Um, uh, and so 
Uh, just interesting that we actually have a carving of, of an individual alive at this time. But she has the typical uh, Egyptian headdress and uh, neckline and the skirt and so forth. What is she missing that you often see on Egyptian pharaohs? Whether male or female? Beard. An Egyptian pharaoh who is a woman still gets a beard on her statues because that's the sign of the pharaoh. At that time, Solomon offered whole burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of the Lord, which he had built in front of the porch. That's that front part of the, te of the temple. In keeping with day the day-by-day -day requirements for burnt offerings commanded by Moses for the Sabbaths, for the new moons, uh, and for the appointed festivals three times during the year, namely the festival of unleavened bread, that's Passover. What month does Passover happen usually? Late March, early April. Festival of weeks, feast of weeks is Pentecost. Pentecost, usually June, right? And, or Father's Day, if you want to think of it that way. Um, and then the festival of shelters or tabernacles, which included the Day of Atonement, which is the September festival, or early October. Okay. And for those festivals, no matter what you are uh, in Israel, uh, Levite or layman, it's every guy goes to Jerusalem. Everybody went to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices for those festivals. We're told, by the way, in the, in the story of Jesus' birth, Mary and Joseph regularly went up to Jerusalem for the festivals. So we know that that is true for them too. These are those verses from Leviticus I said I would show you um, just briefly. Speak to the Israelites. And, this is Leviticus 1-2. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance of the tent of meeting so it will be acceptable to the Lord. He is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. This is the offerer. He is to slaughter the young bull before the Lord and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides at the entrance of the tent of meeting and so forth. Make sense? You bring a sacrifice, you better bring a knife and not your best clothes. Does that make sense to us? Boy, if you're going to go to church, you better not take your best clothes. You know. Solomon, back to Solomon. He appointed the divisions of the priests to serve according to the regulations of his father David, as well as the Levites for their offices of praise and service in the presence of the priest. We read all this in First Chronicles under David. Um, in keeping with each day's requirement, he also appointed the gatekeepers by their divisions gate by gate because this was the command of David, the man of God. They did not turn aside from the king's command for the priests and the Levites concerning any matter, including the treasuries. Those two issues, things will be issues later in the days of Solomon's successor and then his great-grandson, so, or great-great-grandson. So all Solomon's work was accomplished from the day that the foundation of the Lord's house was laid until its completion. So the house of the Lord was finished. Then Solomon went to Ezi and Geber and to Elat on the shore of the sea in the land of Edom. I'm going to show you a map in a second. Horam sent him ships and experienced crews who knew the sea. They were under the direction of, the officer, of his officers. They went to Ophir, that's 
South or Central Eastern Africa. Or Western Saudi Arabia. Make sense? In there somewhere. So they went to Ophir with Solomon's crews. And from there they obtained 450 talents of gold and brought it to King Solomon. This is the map. Mediterranean Sea is up at the top left, the, the dark. This is a satellite picture. Um, there is some red because of, of the time of year it is and when certain things are in bloom. And the satellite even picks that up here and there. Um, but Easy and Geber is, does it spin if I touch it like that? Yeah, see it? Pretty fancy. Okay, uh, uh, that's Easy and Geber. Notice if Hiram sends ships from Lebanon, how do they get down to Easy and Geber? The Nile is... The Nile is off to the left. It's not going to... And by the way, if you go down the Nile, you're in the Mediterranean. You have to go up the Nile to, the, to Victoria Falls. It's not going to take you anywhere. No, you, they had to sail all the way around Africa. They would have had to have circumnavigated Africa to get there. <laughs> when was the Suez Canal completed? Do you know? You know who built it? Napoleon Bonaparte. Excellent. Yeah, the French. Built the Suez. And what year is that? It's the same decade my ancestors crossed the, 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 the Midwest to get to Wisconsin, around 1820. Yeah, before that, actually, um, a little before that, right in there. Um, when the work began, at least. So, yeah, that's Bonaparte. I wanted, also wanted to see what 16 tons looks like because that's the number of talents. Um, anybody remember Tennessee or any Ford? So... Four tons, eight tons, 12 tons, 16 tons. Those are coal cars. But uh, that day that I loaded two and a half tons of hymnals, I had this song in my head. Um, so that's a lot. And that was, this is coal. That was gold. You know, that's a lot of, that's a lot of gold. Actually, gold would, would take up less space than this does because gold is much heavier and denser, but still... What, what weighs exactly the same as gold? Do you know? Their atomic weight is only one point off. You want to think about alchemy? Lead. If you shut your eyes and have a brick of lead in one hand and a brick of gold in one hand and shut your eyes, you scratch it with your thumb, you hold it like this, you smell it, you even taste it, you can't tell the difference. Lead, but don't lick lead. You know. Okay. Any questions on chapter 8? You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.